This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. How are you today? Good to have you along. It is five past twelve. A little later this hour after the news headlines at half past twelve, heading to the Pilbara where some of the locals are not very happy with Andrew Forrest's FMG company after it switched off a mobile phone tower in the middle of a black spot. Now, this was a great resource for the locals. You know how there's that kind of fixing some of that patchwork of mobile phone coverage in some of these uh, outback areas of Western Australia. So it was great, but FMG's done the job, it finished its mine, so it's packed everything up and heading off. So should a company like FMG maintain a service like that? Or maybe someone else should step in, the state or federal government, Telstra, for example. We'll get into that story shortly here on The Country Hour, just after half past 12 today. And also, just before the news at one, it is off to Mouche to see how the cattle was selling today at the market. And Terry Birkin will be along with all the details for you. Speaking of cattle, kicking off today with the news that the Indonesian government has suspended imports of live cattle from four Australian export facilities following the detection of the virus lumpy skin disease in livestock shipped from Australia. One suspended facility is here in Western Australia, another in Queensland and two in the Northern Territory. Trade is permitted to continue, though, from 28 other licensed export facilities. Dr Mark Shipp is Australia's chief vet. He says Australian and Indonesian authorities are working together to investigate how the infections occurred. Lumpy skin disease is a serious disease of of cattle and buffalo and it has been present in Indonesia for a year now. In testing cattle that on arrival in their post-entry quarantine facilities, they've found that a number of Australian cattle are infected and are investigating why those those cattle are infected and we're working with them on that investigation. Do you know roughly uh, how many cattle have tested positive? They test uh, 5 to 10% of uh, each of the consignments that arrive and out of that a dozen or so cattle have tested positive to date across northern Australia and uh, we're working to identify the reasons for those infections given that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. The issue here is where this infection may have occurred, whether it occurred in Australia or it occurred in Indonesia, where where the cattle were actually infected. Are you able to establish that at the moment? As I say, uh, Australia is free of lumpy skin disease and we're working to identify when when those cattle and where those cattle became infected. It may have been uh, during the voyage between Australia and uh, Indonesia. The virus is carried by insects, biting insects. It could have been after they arrived in Indonesia and were placed into quarantine facilities and uh, feedlots. In some cases, the, these cattle were vaccinated after they arrived and then tested after the vaccination. So there are a number of points where these cattle could have been exposed to lumpy skin disease and that's what we're trying to ascertain. Because the Indonesians are, 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 are sort of, well, saying that it might have been here that they were infected. I know you're saying we're free of that, that skin disease. How long have we been free of that disease for? Is there any way it could have come back into Australia? 
That disease has never been reported in Australia. We undertake uh, regular surveillance uh, across northern Australia through the Northern Australian Quarantine Strategy. We inspect all of our cattle that are exported. We have uh, veterinary supervision of those loadings and any suspect cattle are, are sampled. And we've never detected lumpy skin disease in Australia. The cattle that have tested positive, do you know where they've come from in Australia? Uh, they've come from the three northern jurisdictions, uh, from Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland. And do you know where, and they were all yarded in the same facility? No, four for, uh, facilities that they were yarded in across uh, those uh, three jurisdictions and it's those four uh, y- uh, export yards that have been suspended by Indonesia until we conclude this investigation. Do you know which export yards they are? Are you able to name them? Uh, we're not able to name them because they're, they're commercial uh, enterprises and uh, it would have a, an impact on, on them. Uh, so we're unable to identify them further at this point. Okay. So what's the process now and in, in, in the length of time it will take to test cattle? So we, we've uh, commenced uh, the testing today. Uh, we, we were informed of uh, these uh, results on Friday and, and have worked through the weekend to set up a testing protocol. Uh, so that testing's commenced uh, today. We'll collect uh, samples from uh, cattle across those uh, four registered establishments and seek to uh, have those tested both at uh, regional laboratories in, in the, those jurisdictions, but also at the National Reference Laboratory in Geelong uh, run by CSIRO. Once we have those results, we'll convey those to Indonesia and we hope that will be in the middle to, to late this week. Dr Ship, there's some modelling that's been done by the Centre of Excellence for Biosecurity Analysis. It was done last year and it did estimate there was a 28% chance of a lumpy skin disease outbreak in Australia in the next five years. Um, do you take that seriously? Does that concern you? Yes, that, that was uh, preliminary research uh, to in, in order to to give us a sense of, of the level of risk. Because uh, this is a, a virus that's spread by biting insects, the concern was that those biting insects could be blown into Australia. Since we undertook that work with Zebra, uh, we've identified that it's, it's highly unlikely that uh, those biting insects would be blown into Australia in sufficient numbers in order to cause an infection in Australia. How, how infectious is this virus? It's of great concern because it is uh, spread by biting insects and for that reason, Measures at, at borders, measures on, on farms are, are, are very largely ineffective in controlling biting insects. So unless you're able to control biting insects, it's difficult to control this. Therefore, the approach is to vaccinate and, and we've provided uh, Indonesia with uh, over 900,000 doses of vaccine with another 500,000 doses uh, scheduled to arrive uh, later this financial year. And we'll talk more about that program in Indonesia and the assistance that Australia is providing authorities over there to try and get on top of lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease just before the headlines at half past 12 today. That was Australia's chief vet, Dr Mark Ship with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 12 past 12. Well, LSD was first detected in Indonesia last year and poses no risk to humans. It's never been detected in Australia. However, it's estimated that an outbreak here could cost more than $7 billion in the first year. And that's because all beef, dairy and live cattle trade would draw to a halt 
while new trade deals had to be negotiated. John McKillop is chair of the Red Meat Advisory Group. He says at this stage he's not very concerned about the situation unfolding in Indonesia as he's confident Australia is still LSD-free. Not really that concerned, to be honest. It's just a, a disruption due to a technical issue. The way we see it at the moment is that there have been uh, cattle of Australian origin that have tested positive for lumpy skin disease um, in Indonesia. And as a precautionary um, uh, statement, the Indonesians have come out and said, well, we're going to um, not take cattle from four out of the 28 facilities uh, that, are, that are registered for export to Indonesia. Um, so at this stage, we're just hoping that um, with Mark Ship, the Chief Veterinary Officer, that we'll work through those technical issues um, and government to government and soon we'll be back to normal trading um, within, hopefully within weeks. Is it 13 cattle from across the four facilities? Yes, 13 cattle, but again, that originated from those four facilities or at some point came through those four facilities. I um, just need to be very clear that those cattle have been in Indonesia for some period of time. How long is some period of time? Uh, the best way we understand it, it's either weeks or months for, um, obviously, there's there's a mix of cattle up there, um, but in that sort of time frame. Can you estimate the cost of this suspension to trade? I mean, it's four, four exports facilities. There are 28 that remain unaffected. What could potentially be the cost of this, uh, this suspension? Um, we think the cost will be very low, if at all, because... Um, those other facilities will will flex up and, and take additional stock and therefore will end up with um, hopefully the same number of cattle heading up there. You've got to remember that Indonesia relies on these cattle for their protein source. So um, Indonesians, and particularly the importers in Indonesia, are very keen to find alternative pathways to continue with this, this important trade. John McKillop, who is chair of the Red Meat Advisory Council, speaking to Kath Sullivan. 14 past 12. So where to from here with this? Kununurra veterinarian Peter Letchford says government and private vets will now work to reassure Indonesia that Australia remains free of lumpy skin disease. Immediately I was concerned, surprised, alarmed, but yeah, immediately thinking of, you know, well, how can we um, reassure that that it's not the case, both ourselves and them. What do you think the likelihood of this being an Australian-born infection actually is? I think it's very unlikely because as the report, uh, the test shows that they've come from animals across all northern jurisdictions of Australia, Queensland, Northern Territory and WA and also this time of the year at the end of July when um, you know the last three, four months we've had prevailing winds that make it unlikely for there to be an incursion, insect-borne incursion into the country. So for there to be widespread incursions across the whole of the north of Australia at this time of the year is highly unlikely. But we have to reassure ourselves and our clients, our, our trading partners, that that is the case. You know, I think it's highly unlikely for those reasons. And the disease is in the clinical phases of the disease. It's quite acute. The animals are sick, very sick, febrile, you know, before they develop the skin lesions. And um, the skin lesions are quite distinctive and involve the whole depth of the dermis, which is quite different to a lot of the skin lesions that we do get from other causes in Australia. So with the testing that we have been doing, you know, it it is quite distinctive. And uh, we have been doing 
testing, but we just have to be a little bit more targeted in that testing now in the, in the coming week to reassure our trading partners that we are free and ourselves. So as you say, in the coming weeks, it's reassurance. What does that look like in practice? So really, it, it, action is happening right now. Yeah, so things have been set in motion as we speak. So things will be happening in the next couple of days and a lot happening in the next week. And, and that will involve targeted surveillance where we will go to specific PICs, property identification codes, and we'll be taking um, serology and even any uh, samples from any lesions that might be considered a possibility and testing those putting them through a number of tests, both in state laboratories and federal laboratories, to um, to reassure our uh, valued trading partners and, and ourselves that we are free. Can you explain to me why you're so confident in saying that it's so unlikely in relation to what you know about the surveillance that's currently being done and has been done in Northern Australia? Look, I do appreciate over the wet season that, you know, we have large areas that are probably not being monitored, but stations are monitoring their stock. And as I said before, is that, you know, to have an incursion across all jurisdictions, Queensland, Northern Territory and WA, and it go undetected um, when there is on the ground people monitoring livestock and any, uh, and the nature of the disease, it's fairly infectious and spreads fairly rapidly it can with the right prevailing conditions through insects that we would have uh, detected something by now. But we have to make sure that that is the case. Peter Letchford, he's from Pastoral Veterinary Solutions, Kununurra, speaking to Alice Marshall about how local vets are going to be involved in reassuring the Indonesian government that lumpy skin disease is not present in Australia. 18 past 12. David Stote owns Anna Plains Cattle Station in the Kimberley, about 150 kilometres south of Broome. David, what do you think are the trade implications of this unfolding situation in Indonesia? Well, any any obstruction to the trade is, is something that, that's not welcome. So, I mean, you're always thinking that there could be something more going on than there is at the surface, but... Yeah, we, we, we don't want uh, any interruptions to the trade and um, this, this is certainly one of them, although ha- having said that, you know, most export yards in the north are still open, so hopefully things can keep going. Now, the, the timing of this too isn't the best because we've already seen cattle prices basically halve if we look back, you know, if we look at the prices now compared to this time last year. I mean, some of the highs were around the $5.50 a kilo mark and more recently in Western Australia, pastoralists are getting, well, below $3 a kilo. What do you think are the implications for prices here? Well, they, can, they can't be positive, that's, that's for sure. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, an interruption of the trade isn't going to have a positive effect on price. It, it, it's got to be negative. But, it, I mean, it, it all depends on how long this, the problem goes on for. If, it, if it's resolved... Uh, quickly, as we all hope it will be, it, uh, it may have very little impact on prices. If it, if it goes on and you know, affects confidence in the industry in a broader sense, then it'll obviously have a, it could have a much bigger effect on prices. And, and I guess that's true because the other key markets like Vietnam, for example, that producers, pastoralists do send to, they'd be watching this space very closely, wouldn't they? 
They, they would, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they are. But, I mean, they do tend to take more heavier cattle, whereas Indonesia still takes mainly feeder cattle. So it's... Um, the specifications for the for the markets are a little different. So, but uh, nevertheless, you know, if uh, the Vietnamese can see a, you know lower prices, uh, you know, then they're not going to argue with that. No, true. Any suggestion, David, that this situation in Indonesia is uh, linked or related to the high prices we were talking about a moment ago over the last year or so, because they have been paying very high prices to get their hands on Australian cattle. Do you think there's anything in that? Uh, look, it's just pure speculation. I mean, and, you know, that'll certainly go on in um, in the industry. So, I mean, who would know? It's um, probably above my pay grade a bit. But, uh, I mean, it's certainly the high prices have hurt Indonesian importers and, and everyone in Indonesia last year. So, you know, hopefully the correction in prices that we've seen this year will stimulate demand and... Um, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's hard, hard to know what really is going on. And in terms of, you know, cattle being yarded for export or ships on the water, what do you know on that front? Uh, well, I, I understand that there are ships on the water which will be they're okay to, to keep going as far as I know. So um, I understand there are some cattle in one of the yards that have been affected, so that'll be, a, you know, a very big problem for them, for those cattle uh, that, that are in the yard. So, um, you know, it just depends on how long it takes to resolve. If, if it's resolved quickly, then it won't be an issue. But if it, you know, goes on for weeks and the cattle are sitting in a yard, it, it's obviously makes it very difficult for everyone. So with, with the cattle in the yards, that's in the Western Australian affected facility? Uh, I understand that might be uh, not in the WA facility, as I understand it, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Mm. But if there's nothing wrong with them, surely they can just go back to the property or just wait for this to clear and then get on the ship to Indonesia. I suppose that's the best case scenario. Uh, well, once they're in an export yard, you don't really want them going anywhere else for biosecurity reasons. So that that's where the problem comes in and make, makes it very difficult. Right, so they do need to, to go to their... A destination. Yeah, some, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. How soon does this need to be sorted? Well, the sooner the better, really. But, um, I mean, look, it's in the hands of bureaucrats, so, um, you know, from Indonesia and with their Australian counterparts. So, you know, you've, it's, you know, who knows how long it'll all take. Mm. But, I mean, for now, I mean, it's just business as usual at your place, isn't it? Because um, the, the chief vet's saying there's no lumpy skin here in Australia. There are still so many facilities, export facilities open for business. So it's a matter of just redirecting to those facilities that can still keep exporting to Indonesia. That's right. I mean, everyone in the north got to keep doing what they normally do. I mean, we can't, we can't, we're in the middle of the dry season, which is when all the cattle marketing and um, mustering goes on. So we, we, we've got to, I mean, that's what we're doing today and we've got, got to keep doing it and um, hope, hopefully the situation will sort itself out. Yeah, and you're mustering for another ship going out of WA? Uh, yeah, in a, in a few weeks that we're hoping that there's more out of Broome, but uh, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. David, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. David Stodes from Anna Plains Cattle Station in the Kimberley. 24 past 12. WA's Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis declined an invitation to 
come here on the Country Hour today and speak to you, saying that this is really a, a federal government issue. But she has sent through a statement and the Minister says she's aware of the issue and the state government is working closely with the Commonwealth, industry and other jurisdictions to provide assurances to Indonesian authorities and restore exports from those affected facilities. 25 past 12. The head of Australian and Indonesian-based cattle company, Consolidated Pastoral Company, wouldn't speak to today's trade issues, but says continued vigilance by all Australians is really important to keep these diseases out. And you have seen that campaign rolled out over the last year or so, the Binya Thongs biosecurity campaign was rolled out and that was all about educating travellers returning from popular holiday destinations like Bali of the biosecurity risks posed to our ag industry from lumpy skin and also foot and mouth disease. Head of consolidated pastoral company Troy Setter travels between the two countries quite often. He says the biosecurity measures are still intense but necessary. The flights I've been on, I've uh, certainly had my had to walk through uh, footbars. Um, there's been checks on the plane and announcements on the plane, pamphlets handed out, and uh, and bag checks done um, at uh, at the airport um, on arrival to ensure that we're not carrying food or that the shoes and, and other equipment are, are clean of, of soil. So you've thrown a few pairs of thongs away then. That was the uh, remember that was the PR campaign. Ditch the thongs. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've uh, ditched the thongs or, or I leave shoes and clothes up there because I do go uh, to our two feedlots um, and to markets and, and so I leave those clothes up there. I then also spend about 36 hours in Jakarta and, and wash any uh, clothing I've got with me and if I didn't wear it and change my bag and things so I want to be extra careful and then I spend 10 days in Australia not going anywhere near agriculture um, to ensure that there's no no risk. Foot and mouth disease can live in the human nose uh, and respiratory tract for a couple of days and it can live on leather and rubber and things for around three to four months. So it's really important that we all take it super, super carefully and, and be and be very, very uh, strict about biosecurity. It's not just Indonesia. I mean, most of Southeast Asia and big parts of Europe and a lot of Africa's got foot and mouth and lumpy skin and it's so important that we take our biosecurity seriously. And for someone whose business relies on cattle trade uh, between the two countries, is this frontline biosecurity uh, measures enough for you? Um, it, it is. I think it, it's it's very important that we, we keep the biosecurity up, not just with Indonesia, but all, all countries. Australia's got a great record of being uh, clean and, and green and, and free of most exotic diseases and uh, we need to, to keep that uh, up, um, not just with Indonesia but with, I hate to signal out countries, but there's a lot of countries in Africa and Southeast Asia that have foot and mouth disease like Indonesia does. And just remind people of your feedlots in Indonesia, uh, how are you going containing lumpy skin and foot and mouth? Where's that program up to? So both our feedlots in Indonesia have um, have really strict biosecurity uh, programs for people or vehicles entering. Every vehicle's double washed. Uh, people have to change clothes um, into our clothes, and we we wash those clothes. We do 
tracing to ensure that no one uh, is coming from a, an infected area or infected abattoir um, or farm. <clears throat> we um, we have very strict uh, physical controls around the property. We are spraying and and uh, and controlling insects um, at all times. All animals are vaccinated for the foot and mouth and lumpy skin as soon as they step off the ship. Okay. Um, and uh, and we run a very tight program. We haven't suffered from foot and mouth or lumpy skin in either of our two feedlots in Indonesia. There's over 12,500 families rely on both our feedlots in Indonesia and 600 direct employees and, and uh, it's just so important that we look after their jobs and, and their families' jobs and the communities that rely on us, farmers supplying us products and, and things and then also the welfare of the animals is so important as well. Troy Setter, he is the CEO of Consolidated Pastoral Company and he was catching up with Amy Phillips. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Beale in the studio with the latest from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. Four people charged with murdering a teenager in Perth's east are set to go on trial in the Supreme Court in 2025. 15-year-old Cassius Turvey was attacked as he walked in Middle Swan in October last year. He died days later from his injuries. Jack Stephen James Brearley, Alicia Louise Gilmore, Mitchell Colin Forth and Brodie Lee Palmer have all been charged with murder. The trial is likely to run for eight weeks. Senior State Government Minister Sue Ellery says Labor's result in the Rockingham by-election should not be taken as a sign of how the ALP will fare at the next election. Labor retained the seat held by former Premier Mark McGowan but its primary vote fell 33%, its lowest vote since Mr McGowan was elected. The Liberals' primary vote rose 8% which is still far below its long-term average in the electorate. And the Prime Minister has criticised the Coalition's attempt to reverse a promised $40 a fortnight increase to Job seeker. The federal opposition will try to amend the bill to increase the payment and instead lift the income threshold at which benefits begin to be reduced. Anthony Albanese says the coalition's proposal does nothing for the almost four in five job seekers for whom the income free threshold does not apply. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And between now and the news at one, off to Muche for the results of the cattle market. And talking about this mobile phone tower in the Pilbara, quite a remote location. The locals want it to stay, but the resource company that was doing a job in the area, building a mine, it's done its work and it's time to switch it off. So what happens from here? They quite liked that mobile phone coverage with that tower doing the job. Is it turned off permanently or does someone else step in and continue with it? We'll find out shortly. And right now it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is with you today. Angeline, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. How does it look this afternoon and for the rest of the week? Good afternoon, Belinda. It's looking pretty benign for the rest of today and into tomorrow. Uh, we have got a ridge of high pressure that's uh, slowly moving off to the east. Uh, so it's the winds are gradually turning uh, northerly. So 
Warmer temperatures are generally a few degrees above average for this time of the year, about four to six. Um, and then uh, uh, the winds will start to freshen from tomorrow. The next significant cold front is going to arrive uh, across the Southwest Land Division on Wednesday and rapidly move off to the east on Thursday. Um, it's uh, it's significant in terms of uh, rainfall. So there is a rain band associated with this cold front. So we will see some good falls across the Southwest Land Division, generally um, east of uh, uh, Probably uh, Meriden about two to ten millimeters. Uh, uh, there might be isolated heavier falls up to twelve millimeters. The west of Meriden to about Ravensthorpe, we can expect a little bit more, ten to twenty millimeters. Uh, there could be isolated falls up to twenty-five, and closer to the west coast uh, through much of the lower west and southwest, and maybe the far western parts of the great southern west of Katanning, uh, the falls would be heavier, 20 to 30, but isolated heavier falls, 30 to 50 millimetres, especially through the Scarp and the southwest coast. The rainfall does ease uh, fairly significantly on Thursday with the cloud band and front uh, moving further east. Uh, we'll still expect some rainfall on Thursday, generally less than uh, 10 millimetres. Um, east of Meriden, it'll be about at 5 to 10 west, uh, maybe 2 to 8 millimeters. Uh, and then uh, the rest of the week or the, and the weekend is looking fairly banana under a uh, firm ridge of high pressure. We will start to see a return of large uh, frost areas uh, from Friday into the weekend. Also, quite cold temperatures, Belinda. We're looking at the zero or sub zero temperatures over large areas of the inland southwest land division from Friday and onwards due to clear skies overnight under that ridge of high pressure. And then what's the story for northern and eastern parts, Angeline? Um, those warmer temperatures are affecting uh, the northern and eastern parts uh, today into tomorrow. Um, not expecting much weather across the northern parts of the of WA uh, this week. There is a weak trough of low pressure sitting near the eastern Kimberley and the northeastern interior. Might produce one or two light showers over the next 24 to 48 hours, but the trough is going to disappear. Now, the cold front that is coming through on uh, on Wednesday is fairly extensive uh, cloud band, so we will see some showers uh, extend into the western parts of the Kimberley. Uh, the Pilbara, and across much of the Gascoigne as well. So uh, some rain for those areas on Wednesday into Thursday. Much of the uh, rainfall will fall on Wednesday through the western parts of the Pilbara and the Gascoigne. Again, 2 to 10 millimetres, but over the western Pilbara, it should be less than 5 millimetres. And then a slow clearance on Thursday, and a return to dry, to a dry uh, pattern on Thursday, uh, sorry, on on Friday and the weekend for those two districts. Through the gold fields and the interior, we're looking at uh, quite warm conditions and uh, winds will get fresh to strong and gusty ahead of that front on Wednesday. So maybe looking at some elevated fire dangers, generally high, but there could be patches of extreme. Now rainfall, um, widespread areas of rainfall on Wednesday and Thursday with uh, clearance on Friday there. The weekend should be pretty good right across WA. Oh, good to hear. All right. And this afternoon, any warnings, Angeline? 
now uh, it's very unusual. There are no warnings, um, but a couple of things to keep in mind with that cold front. There's some risk of gusty thunderstorms on the west coast on Wednesday morning. Marginal risk of damaging winds. Also, there's a risk we could see some heavy falls, especially across the southern parts of the southwest land division. So we may see some warnings on Wednesday, but at this stage it's looking fairly marginal. Uh, strong winds return through our coastal waters from tomorrow. Thank you so much, Angeline. 24 to 1. Michelle Stanley in the studio to go through the rainfall figures. Yeah, nothing significant in the north, but in the south a little bit. In the 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, uh, totals over 5 millimetres. In the central west, Karoo West had 6, Eniaba 10, Geraldton Airport 6 and Waradaji East had 6. In the lower west, Ankatel 9, Araluan 19, Bickley 20, Bindoon 7, Bungador 17, Chidlow 8, Dwelling Up 19, Gidget Gun up 13, Jinjin West 5, Glen Eagle 24, Jaradal 21 to 26, Carnet 15, Carrigal and North 10, Lake Chittering 7, Mandra 9, Mount Solus 13, Mushe 8, Mundaring 24, Pierce Raff had 9, Pinjara 12, Pinjara South 9, Rolly Stone 14, Serpentine 17, Wanneroo 9, Maruna 14, Werribee 13, and Whiteman Park at 5. In the southwest, Acton Park 6, Bailing up 5, Beetle up 12, Boy up north eight. Bridgetown had three that stuck in. Brunswick Junction 11. Bunbury 20. Bustleton Shire had 41. Cape Naturalist 9. Capel 9. Capel North had eight. Carlotta 6. Collie 14. Collie East 10. Quorum up 6. Darden up 17 to 20. Darden up East 13. Donnybrook 8 to 9 millimetres. Donnybrook East 6. Ferguson Valley 9 to 12. Four Acres 12. Happy Valley Alert 7. Harvey 11. Hentybrook 15, Jarrowwood 5, Caradale 16, Logebrook 21, Ludlow 6, Mandrum up 7 to 9. Uh, Margaret River 10, MacLinden 10, Millian up 8, Mount William 24, Mile up 11, Newlands 11, Northcliff 13, Pandale Alert 10, Pemberton 13, Perryvale Orchard 7, Quidden up 7, Ravenscliff Alert 6, Rosabrook 8, Scott River 11, Shannon 10, Thompson Brook 10, Vass 5, Warpole Forestry 17, Willyabrup 7, Windy Harbour 13 and Yanmar had 9. In the southern coastal region, Denbarker 6, Denmark 5, Kimberley 7. In the central wheat belt, Mount Hardy had six, York had seven, and in the Great Southern, Boddington North five, Brookton six, Quartering five, Colford had ten, Maradong nine, Wandering five, Wickepin six, Wickepin North five, Wickepin South seven, Wilgara seven, and Williams North had five. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's 22 to 1. And Michelle just sticking around in the studio for a little bit longer because she's been working on a story that in, in the patch you usually cover in the Pilbara part of Western Australia where Andrew Forrest's FMG has some of the locals a little bit offside after switching off a mobile phone tower in the middle of a black spot. And some of the locals are calling for better forward planning just to keep these services in the region. So Michelle's been covering this story and catching up with a few of the people in the area. Michelle, why has the tower been switched off in the first place? Yeah, basically because FMG just doesn't need it anymore. So Fortescue Meadows Group, it is owned by billionaire Andrew Forrest. It had built a camp and put this temporary mobile tower about 40 kilometres out of Marble Bar in the Pilbara. So it was put in while they were building the latest iron bridge iron ore mine and there's a pipeline that's been built to bring in water from the Canning Basin in the Pilbara and so 
while that was being built, this phone tower and camp were put there for the construction, but that's all wrapping up now, which means the tower has been switched off and, yeah, it'll be taken away. And so what has the local response been to that? Yeah, they're unimpressed. Um, They've had phone reception there for two years and the phone tower is still there. It's cemented in the ground, but it's switched off. And so after two years, the locals just can't understand why it's now being taken away. I did speak with one person who was a bit hesitant to speak out, um, but they made the point that, you know, in this day and age in Australia, this is such a busy transport corridor and it just should have phone coverage. I also spoke with Annabelle Coppen from Yarry Station and she's really frustrated by the decision. Which I, I don't think that that's good enough. I don't think that's good enough for the community. We have to have rocks in our head to think that's a really great idea that when a mining company leaves, takes their camps away, takes all the facilities away, that it's okay to then take the comms as well. Every little tower makes all the difference, doesn't it, in the end? Where exactly is the tower, Michelle? It probably seems like the middle of nowhere for a lot of our listeners. It's 40 kilometres out of Marble Bar. So on the Marble Bar Road, about 160 k's from Port Hedland. But it's actually become a really busy road. There are a huge number of heavy vehicles which cart iron ore uh, and manganese, that kind of thing, to Port Hedland, the port there. There are also plenty of locals, pastoralists, um, tourists as well. And there are a couple of Aboriginal communities just there as you know right around the corner so quite a few people were benefiting from from this temporary tower and Annabelle Coppin was saying that it's a 110 kilometer stretch of road there that is actually a black spot and this tower was smack bang in the middle of it so while it wasn't huge it was providing a really important service. It wasn't a huge range but it certainly gave enough phone range if there was an emergency on the highway or if somebody would broken down or somebody had to get onto somebody, they had a bit of range between those two points, which we all know can make a difference even to a point of saving someone's life. Yeah, so not a big footprint, but but Annabelle Coppin making that point that a really small thing can sometimes make a really big difference. All right, so what's Annabelle Coppin and some of the other people you've spoken to, what are they calling for? Essentially, they're calling on Andrew Forrest and, and FMG to turn the tower back on and, and to leave it there. Annabelle Coppin was saying that, you know, it could be a really good gesture of goodwill from FMG for the local community. If we're going to be bringing capital in and adding communication towers, which are a wonderful thing for the region, that they shouldn't go away then when when a project gets packed up and goes somewhere else. At least that is an advantage to the community and something left that will be a long-lasting legacy from the, from the mining community back to the whole general community as a whole. I did ask for an interview with FMG. They didn't want to speak with me, but did give me a statement to say that the tower and the camp nearby there as well were being demobilised in line with usual practice to be used at an alternate location for a future camp in the Pilbara. Annabelle Coppin said she'd also been in touch with FMG and they told her that it's costly and it's also not FMG's obligation to be running that kind of thing. So that's why they'll be taking it away. But coming from a company which recorded a $9 billion dollar profit last year that response didn't go down well just take 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 they put the camp there they have the resources and the facilities to give their team communication while they're there why can't they then give something back to the community that actually really makes a difference at least from something that they're taking out of the country because they're taking a lot 
at least they're giving something back. So they can put their signs on the road and, and promote themselves. We're giving you some phone service. Go for it, FMG. Do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel promoted within the community. But let's think about things that actually really make a difference. So Annabelle Coppin and some of the others I've spoken to have been saying that particularly in the Pilbara, the mining footprint is just so big. So could you imagine if there was really good phone service in all of those places, not just while the mine is running, but for years into the future? And it's not just Marble Bar. I mean, they're talking about the potential benefit that mining could bring in terms of mobile service across the Pilbara and more broadly across Australia if there was more forward planning, some foresight and if things weren't just set up for a temporary camp but actually set up for the future. 16 to 1 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Michelle Stanley in the studio today and just talking about this mobile phone tower in the middle of a black spot in the Pilbara and it was set up there by Andrew Forrest's FMG company and the whole purpose was it was to help communications obviously while they're building this new mine but the job's done now and it's time to pack up and shut it down and some of the locals aren't happy about that and they're calling for better forward planning just to keep these sort of services in the region. Now, Michelle, FMG might argue that it's not its job to supply communications to a regional community. It's done its job there. And as the company said in the statement, it's got no obligation to continue with that sort of service. And, and why should it? It's a, you know, listed company. It's done the job. It's out of there. But there have been similar sort of instances in the past with a phone tower and a mining company what was the outcome there? Yeah, so about a decade ago, a company called Molly Mines, it's changed its name now, but back then it set up a Spinifex Hill site. And when it went to sort of pack up and, and get going after it finished mining, it was also going to remove its phone tower. But after some discussions with locals, the company saw the benefit and decided to leave that tower behind. So the tower has stayed in place near Marble Bar at the cost of the company at the time. Local Local pastoralists chipped in. They helped maintain the generator to keep it all working. And since then, the tower has actually been taken over by Telstra. So it's, it now belongs to Telstra and it's an asset that will stay in the community. The tech is outdated apparently. It is slated for upgrades, but it is there. And Annabelle Coppin thinks that this should be the expectation. So it's not something that they would have to, you know, take on for the rest of their time. Other companies have done the right thing. It might take five years to transition. Or maybe when they're putting the towers in, let's have a little bit more of a long sight and thought about it and start working with Telstra straight away. Telstra and, and the government should have some responsibility here as well and the Development Commission and anybody else that really needs to think long-term for our region, which is all of us, to, to start thinking strategically about really basic things like having good communication the mining industry has been excellent in injecting capital into the region that needs to stay. Now, I did put some of those comments to Mines Minister Bill Johnston to ask whether he might step in or do something to see that mining companies, state government, Telstra all sort of work together to make sure this sort of service does get kept in communities longer term. He chose not to 
comment not to speak with me. I haven't heard back from Telstra as to whether it would consider taking the tower over. The federal government runs communications in Australia. It, it essentially said that it can't force companies like FMG and telcos like Telstra to work together, but it did recommend that they do work together to put in an application for the federal government's black spot funding. Um, so in the meantime, the tower is still there. It's switched off. Uh, Annabelle Coppen and others in that area are just really hoping that FMG might make that gesture of goodwill, reverse its decision to take it away and, and that it might stay. So frustrating. You can just imagine if you were there and you had the service and suddenly just a flick of a switch and it's turned off like that. So hopefully they can find some way. I don't know if it's FMG or government or Telstra, but some way to keep that there. Thank you, Michelle. Very interesting. Uh, Michelle Stanley is our Pilbara reporter. And Michelle's uh, done it up for you. It's online now, so you can go and read through the story in some more detail. All you need to do is search ABC FMG to find Michelle Stanley's story and go and check out the photos too because, I mean, you can see the phone tower but just some beautiful scenery where Annabelle Coppin's station is, Yarry Station. So go and check her out on the horse with the cattle and that just beautiful landscape. This is The Country on the ABC right across Western Australia and the ABC uh, Listen app. It is 11 minutes to one. Shortly... Off to Mushave for the results of the cattle market. Terry Birkin's going to be along with that. Just before that, though, it's been a really difficult season for olive producers in the state's southwest, particularly between Dunsborough and Augusta. And that is because birds have been wreaking havoc on the olive crop. Brett Roberts is the general manager of Oleobello Organic Olive Farm at Kawarama. He says growers are losing a significant amount of their crop every year for the past few years. We've had growers that have picked every year for the last 10 years and this year, you know, albeit small, you know, small crops, have unfortunately not, uh, picking's not been viable because the birds have taken the lot. Do you and these other growers have any thoughts as to why bird strikes are suddenly, you know, so bad in this region? I, th- I think there's probably a, a couple of anecdotal reasons. No proof as yet, but we seem to have had a migration of parrots uh, from, from the eastern parts of, of the southwest of WA and headed west, and we're not really sure why that's happened. But, but there's yeah, there's been talk of things like the fires and, and, and where the birds have moved as, as a result of that. I'm sure there'd be other people who have a lot more knowledge of that. But certainly we've seen increase in 28s and, and, and an introduction of, of some pink and grey glass and, and birds like that that we haven't really noticed before. And they've been uh, their numbers have been a lot larger during our harvest. Tell us how and when they affect you so is it all year round or they just come in right when you're about to harvest the 28s are very intelligent so the the interesting thing from the 28s perspective is they're not after the olive they're after the kernel inside the pip so they'll they'll come along and just knock off the branches or the very small twigs that have the olives on them and let them rot and start to rot on the ground and when the olives soften and rot then the parrots will come in and just split up, split open the olive and then the pip and eat the kernel. So, so they're, they're quite industrious and, uh, and they're very good at what they do, unfortunately for us. And so then over a long period of time, if you haven't got a large crop, then, then that crop can be decimated. What can you do? You know, a harvest has just finished. You've got a bit of time now to yeah. plan and, and, and 
man your battle stations? What, what can you do? Well, I think for us, it is getting to the point where we need to intervene. Yeah, four or five years ago, we probably lost 10% of our crop. And, this is, and we're a small boutique producer as well. This year, we're probably losing between 25 and 35%. So you can see where the trend's going. Netting would be the ultimate solution, but for us, it's just the cost is the capital cost is prohibitive. Um, the, technologically, there might be some some other alternatives, um, use of drones that um, you can program to to go over your groves, you know, during the day, and with specific noise of bird predators, and and that's probably something we're considering that that's financially viable. Uh, whether it works or not, I'm not I'm not sure either. You've never had you know to to adapt to birds before this is really the first time that it's become such a problem that you you'll have to make some changes i think in the last three seasons including this season it's the problem is built they must be really impacting your your hip pocket certainly uh, yeah i think you know olive oil is not a a great return in, in that we get around about 15 percent of oil out of an olive so if you're losing if you're losing a substantial amount of your crop for various reasons, but in this case birds, then that that does detract a lot. If you know your yield drops down, but but we're only getting 15% of oil out of that, so so it does hit us. Olio Bello, olive farm manager Brett Roberts, with Ellie Honeybone talking about a tough olive season, heavily impacted by birds. Eight to one. Well, the company behind the world's first mango picking robot has received a big boost this month, securing financial backing to the tune of $1 million. The technology has been developed by CQ University in partnership with the company Agricultural Robotics and will hopefully reduce the worker shortage issues faced each year by the mango industry. Dr Amanda White from Agricultural Robotics says after years of trials, the tech is now nearing commercialisation and the funding definitely helps. What it comes down to is mangoes uh, annually harvest represents about $128 million to the Northern Territory economy. Uh, with the remaining 92 million gross value being distributed across northern Queensland, northern Western Australia. But there's a big problem here. We have a short harvest turnaround period, can be as brief as eight weeks. And for just a 70,000 tonne of fruit in the NT, each mango is handpicked in excessive temperatures, and those mangoes are perishable. So if you delay picking by more than three days, loss of crop is a real risk. So the question is, how do we address the reality of this situation paired with acidic mango sap as well as uh, scarcity of labour. We need something that's more reliable and safer than the manual pick. So the the mango auto harvester really was designed to solve this problem. AI identifies the location of each mango and for a single arm in an array of four arms, the the return cycle takes about five seconds and those arms are just running continuously. The picking cycle does not stop and our fruit pick success rate is currently over 70%, but it's improving. And we fit the auto harvester on a self-propelled semi-autonomous vehicle. Um, We've partnered in with Nistaforo Farms. They account for about 20% of the Aussie mango crop. They're our commercial partner and look, they back this technology. There's a real appetite to get some change going to better support growers and we're really here for that. You're actually on one of the Nisaforo plantations this afternoon, yes? Correct, yeah. yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm here in the packing shed, in fact. For Country Hour fans, 
who tune in a lot, they'll be familiar with this robot, this story. Yes. Uh, it's, it's been trialled for several years now, but can you maybe just tell us about yes. the last 12 months and some of the innovations that have been made? Mm, absolutely. So in the last 12 months, uh, Central Queensland University, who has been developing the technology for the duration of the project under the guidance of Professor Kerry Walsh, they formed a commercial vehicle partnership because to get this from prototype stage into a working product that you can purchase, uh, they needed a third party and that third party was Queensland-based freelance robotics under William Pagnon. So this meant that there was a diversification of the team and now we're really punching forward to get to the product level readiness for the technology. Um, so there's been some updates, not just for the auto harvester, but also for Orion, the vision rig. Um, this has uh, now really entered the finalization stages so that it's ready to purchase in addition to fruit maps. The suite of technology uh, is also on a fast track to having developments as we pivot into different sorts of agronomy and applications. And I'm really excited to see what the next 12 months will bring forward as well. So is the focus still purely on mangoes? Or you're looking at yes yeah. oh yeah we love mangoes yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, mango mangoes are our core um, group these right. growers are uh, have stood by this technology we have enormous respect for the work that they're doing out there so what it means to us is that mangoes are always the priority yeah even though in the long term of course we will diversify into other fruit types it, it's not the same pick style there will be technology developments it's not as if we're moving past and through um in fact mango is the sole focus still and it will be probably i, I imagine for the next uh, at least 18 months to two years dr amanda white is a founding director of agricultural robotics Speaking to Matt Bran, and you can watch a video of this robot in action. Just go to the ABC Rural website to see it. Three minutes to one, and it's off to the markets now. 762 head of cattle were yarded at the Michet sale yards today. Terry Birkin is there. Terry, how did the sale go today? Hi, Belinda. With around 150 head increase today, numbers continue to be low for this time of the year, with another reasonably even split between local and pastoral cattle. There were some exceptionally well-bred and grain-assisted steers and heifers presented today, along with good quality pastoral lines, dropping off to very plain pastoral cattle. The market mostly remained equal, with interest on light-frame pastoral steers and heifers from live exporters. Wheeler steers overall gained 10 cents, averaging 270 cents, while local wiener heifers struggled, selling from 140 to 216 cents, and their pastoral sisters fared a little better with the interest from live export, ranging from 128 to 282 cents, with better cover. Local yearly steers under 330 kilos to restockers and feedlotters, returning 220 to 296 cents, and the lighter pastoral yearlings again with competition from live export, selling from 110 to 250 cents a kilo. Prime heavyweight grain-assisted yearly steers realised 302 cents, and the best yearling heifers reached 270 cents a kilo, while pastoral yearling heifers ranged from 110 to 230 cents. Grown steers sold from 202 to 242 cents, while grown heifers sold from 200 to 222 cents a kilo. Store cows returned 114 to 166 cents, medium cows selling up to 196 cents, while heavy cows realised 230 cents a kilo. 
Younger bulls ranging from 140 to 252 cents and heavy bulls from 160 cents to 230 cents a kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mushay. Thank you so much, Terry. And you'll be back at Mushay this time tomorrow. Terry is going to go through the results of the sheep market for you. Great to talk to you today. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.